Hi, I'm Sarah Goodall, wife, mum, and marketing obsessed business owner. Welcome to my Campfire Chat series. After 20 plus years in B2B marketing roles, I've had the great pleasure to meet and work with some fascinating folks. People who've inspired or challenged me to think differently about social business, advocacy, and digital leadership. I figured it was time to share their stories and insights in a series of short, punchy podcast chats. Today, I'm talking to Neil Schaefer. Now, Neil is a digital and social media marketing speaker and consultant. In all honesty, he's an absolute legend, and I've been following his content for many years. Neil has a truly global perspective when it comes to social networking, something that we going to be talking about and he's written several books including the recently released the age of influence we'll talk about that later i am absolutely delighted to have neil join me for a campfire chat welcome neil and i'll be honest you've made this rather difficult for me because there is so much we can talk about as we have just done in the pre-chat i think we've got more in common than we thought but this is the first time we've spoken even though we've been following each other for years it, it feels like we know each other even though we've never physically met each other do you know it's wonderful i mean i met Susan Emmerich, who you probably know as well. I met her for the first time a couple of years ago at Kensington Palace in London with my family. And oh um, my. and I just feel like I've known her. I've read her books from like 2011 and been watching her. And then you meet for the first time. It's like you've known someone. Anyway. It's so funny. I think it was B2B marketing profs. I was on stage with Jason Miller talking oh, about yeah. LinkedIn. And I talked about employee advocacy and I brought up her book. Yes. And then after I was done speaking, she actually came up to me and says, hey, thanks for mentioning my book. And I never never met her in my life, right? I'm like, oh my gosh. But yeah, that's crazy. I just love this though, because it's such a connected world and it's brilliant. And the fact I can reach out to you and ask you to have a chat with you, um, because the, the purpose of these podcast chats is really for people that have influenced me, people I admire, people that I watch, that I listen to, that I just think, oh, you know, I could just hang off every word you say. And that's why you're here really. But when I did a bit of digging in prep for this, because I know what you believe in and I follow and I listen to what you're doing and the books that you write. But actually I had no idea about your incredible life story, Neil. In fact, you know, the fact that you've had two near-death experiences and a life-changing experience in Tiananmen Square, clearly this has shaped the path that you have chosen, but you've got to share some of this because... Well, thank you for reading that, Sarah. That's something I think in November, I actually created that page. And it's like, you know what? It's funny because as you know, I've, I've written a few books and my latest book, which is going to be published in March, is called The Age of Influence about influence and marketing. I do have a chapter on employee as influencer, which I'm very passionate about as well. And I, you know, what I realized from that, I've had a few different brands, right? Yeah. I've had windmill networking for those that might remember. I had maximized social business. I had maximized your social. And I was, as yeah. I was writing that book on the concept of sort of influence of digital and, and you know, influence in social media, I realized that, you know, the whole reason that we do you know, when we talk about employee advocacy is that people relate more to people than to brands. Yeah. So if that was the case, what was I doing with all these brand names when I should just be Neil Schaefer? Because that's actually <laughs> going to help people relate more to me and help build my influence over time. I'm a firm believer of that, right? Yeah. So that's the 
ultimate personal brand. And therefore, as I was doing that, I said, like, you know what, I want to make, I think the stickier we as people can make ourselves in social media, in digital media, the more relatable we become and the more we are able to build influence. So I actually want to bring out more of who I am. And a lot of people talk about their families. I think Sarah, you know, before we started the recording, my wife is like, I don't want to be part of your social media. Don't include the kids. So <laughs> I've led a very separate life. I've kept social very professional, which has actually helped me in helping others, social selling trainings and employee advocacy, speaking and what have you. You know, hey, there is a way to create this public persona and and be yourself and open up yourself without having to expose like all of your private interests. Yeah. So that's sort of what I've done. But I, I realized I want to become more personal and let people know more about me because that's the ultimate way to differentiate yourself. And mm -hmm. I think for brands are realizing that the same it's storytelling, right? And I have a lot of stories to tell. And so I created this, you know, start here page on my website. And it's, I'm not even done with it, Sarah. It's funny. I think <laughs> I'm up like 2005, but it's like, we all have different experiences. I want to share them. And I want to know, I want people to know why I've chosen this route and how those things have influenced and we all have unique perspectives, but I wanted people to remember, you know, my unique perspective on things. So, and yeah. I think I just think that's so special. And I also think you've got your next book in the making there, which will be the uh, biography of <laughs> of your life. Well, it's, it's funny. It's funny because the, the first book I was supposed to write was when I worked at this company in um, a Canadian startup in Japan. And in two years, I generated like 30% of global revenue, mainly from Japan. So my CEO is like, Neil, you could write the book on this stuff of how to like yeah. be successful in business in Japan. So that's, that's yeah. sort of the other book that's out there. But that leads me on to my next question, right? Because you can speak Mandarin Chinese and Japanese fluently. I've seen you on YouTube, right? It's incredible. And I just think, you know, you're the authentic global, truly, you understand global cultures and how it's different. You've worked in Japan. Japan, you've, worked, you've studied in China, right? I just think, you know, this is quite incredible. And I, I often get asked, you know, well, what are the cultural differences on social when it comes to sort of Asian cultures and Western cultures? What's your sort of take on that? Do you see a difference or, or not? My really? first take is, and I, as you know, Sarah, I, I speak, you know, I like teach in Ireland and, and, and speak in Europe as well as here, as well as in, in Japan and Asia. So um, I, I try not to have this American-centric view of the world that mm. unfortunately a lot of Americans who haven't been overseas have. Yeah. So um, that begins by challenging myself, is social media this like American thing or is it truly <laughs> global, right? Okay. And I think at the beginning, you know, we're now in the second decade of social media marketing, as I like to say, at the beginning, it's like, well, this is just an American thing. You know, it's never going to take off here. And, and I remember Japan before Facebook. Yeah. Before LinkedIn. And LinkedIn didn't take off. Facebook did take off. And it actually became the LinkedIn for Japan, which is really interesting. But um, what I've noticed, first of all, is that this is truly global. Now, you do have certain countries like China that have their own networks. Mm -hmm. um, Germany had Zing. I mean, it's still there, but obviously LinkedIn is really eaten into that market as well as other social media. Russia, you know, VContact, what have you. But this notion of social media, of having a place where you have a profile and you upload photos and videos and you, you know, you, DM other people, that is global, right? Mm -hmm. The choice of social networks is going to be slightly different depending on the country. But I think right now, and I always show this data whenever I present wherever I am, that you know, Facebook is just as popular overseas as it is in the United States. I think mm -hmm. we can all agree on that. Uh, Twitter is usually just as popular overseas as it is in the United States. They're 
are certain countries like Japan where it's more popular. Mm -hmm. LinkedIn is, it's still most popular here, although in the US, although like there are countries like the Netherlands where it's really, really popular. But oh, yeah. I, think, yeah. I think when it comes to Western Europe, United States, um, you know, different countries throughout the world, it, it indeed is very popular, but it's not as global. Then you get the things like Pinterest that really never made it outside of the United States. You get the things um. like Snapchat that I think really never made it outside the United States as well. But then Instagram it, it is truly global as well. So yeah. first of all, that that's sort of the way I look at the global footprint. And then obviously every culture is slightly different in how they use social media. I think that in North America and in Europe, in Western Europe especially, I think it's it's very, very similar. But, you know, there are countries where, like I said, in, in Japan, most notably, where, you know, I'll go to a company and I'll meet with them, you know, we'll have a business meeting and then I'll get a Facebook friend request, right? Wow. Oh, <laughs> a lot yeah. of people out. To me, it's yeah. totally normal. And I sort of embrace it that every, you know, Facebook is not about being private. These are all sort of public social media. And we've all hijacked them as people and developed our own unique use cases for them. Yeah. So I've seen in, in Japan is really a great case study because they're, they're so different. Um, I've seen Twitter actually is now more popular than Facebook, which yeah. is pretty rare. And you see a lot of people actually having conversations on Twitter instead of just, you know, there's a lot of link dropping that we see. And I'm sort of guilty of that as well um, on Twitter. So yeah, yeah. Th there are differences. I think it's become really a global phenomenon and I wouldn't let those differences hold you back for those that are listening, um, those that want to establish programs, but just know that you can't expect people to be active on LinkedIn if it's not that popular in that country, if their friends are not on it. And, you know, Facebook might be used differently. I, I do believe in not just Japan, but even in Southeast Asia, that Facebook is used more for like a LinkedIn. It's a yeah. place where people go for public information. Uh, professionals use it professionally, what have you. So you just never know what social network people are going to use. And and really, you know, the golden rule is you, you got to be embedded in that culture and really understand it and become a user before you can begin to sort of preach as to what people there should be doing. That's always been sort of my uh, my doctrine, my mantra. That's brilliant. I think also, you know, the tools might change, but people swarm to where the communities are. Do you know, I've made the same observation in South Africa, in Italy, they tend to use Facebook as more the business tool. So it's a little bit like Japan, I think. Much more small, medium businesses. It's all sort of mates, rates, networks. You know, we know you, you know us. And, and it just goes very quickly is less formal than LinkedIn and it's all community kind of buying. So similar kind of thing, really. Actually. And, and everyone's there uh, versus yeah. LinkedIn where unfortunately, I mean, obviously here in the United States and in, in certain Western European countries, you know, most of us are there, but it, it's not like that globally. And I think that's been the challenge for LinkedIn yeah. and just seeing them in Japan, they really modeled themselves as a job hunting site mm. and they, they marketed themselves towards, you know, new college graduates. I don't know. I see, and I, I think you'd agree, Sarah, LinkedIn can be an incredibly enriching site, both professionally and personally. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, LinkedIn will be able to, uh, to, to better represent themselves and, and market that way globally so that we can enjoy the same benefits or everyone can enjoy the Everywhere. same benefits that they are that we have here. <laughs> Love it. Now, I've got to talk to you, changing the subject a little bit about your, your book, The Age of Influence. Now, yes. you and I are connected also through Onlytica because I know they interview you quite a bit about your perspective on influence and influence and marketing is bubbling up now it's it's always been around i think in the last couple of years it's really started to gain traction especially in b2b markets in the b2b industry it's always kind of been in consumer but there are quite a lot of people who are still feeling that influencer marketing is about paying people with lots of followers on twitter to say nice things about you so how would you define it and what's your take 
It's funny. Last night I spoke at a, uh, and this is the reason why I asked if this is going to be on video or not. I didn't get back to late last night, but um, <laughs> last night I spoke at a master's in communications class at a USC, University of Southern California here in Los Angeles. Eager students, you know, mainly in their twenties, the millennial generation. I think that one of the students was like a TikTok influencer with 1.5 oh, million wow. followers. Oh, wow. And the person that spoke before me was from Snapchat, director of content marketing there. So it was very, very cool environment to be in, right? Yeah. And it, it's funny because I, I talk about how we're in the second decade of social media marketing. And influencer marketing to me today is sort of like social media marketing was back in 2010, mm. where companies are like, eh, this is just a fad. You know, oh, if we're on social media, what are people going to say about us? There's yeah. all these sort of misnomers because... These people that say, you know, influencer marketing is just about paying off influencers on Instagram, they're actually not on Instagram, right? The content on Instagram, they're not seeing how advertising on Instagram is really disruptive mm -hmm. and how influencers are really good content creators. So there's this whole sort of notion of, you know, poo-pooing influencers when they don't understand that, first of all, it's become very mainstream. I mean, ask your kids. Well, your kids are, are younger than my kids, but they're already on YouTube and they're already being influenced by influencers, yeah. right? My eight-year-old came back the other day, sat around the table and she goes, mommy, I'd like a TikTok account. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> my jaw dropped to the table. I'm like, really? <laughs> and that's the dream for kids is to become YouTubers, right? To, to become influencers, like the dot-com of, of the 2020s. So I think that for, for companies to just completely write it off, it's very similar to when companies were writing off social media 10 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Everything has its benefits and its disadvantages. And I think that there's a lot being said, even some pretty notable people in the space are writing off influencer marketing as well, which yeah. people that I think they claim that they're sort of marketing experts and they're published authors. And I think that they completely miss the boat on, yeah. on, on really, first of all, defining influence, right? Yeah. So it begins with the fact that what are the things that as a company we can do to get the word out about ourselves? I really like to dumb this down and look at it really holistically. Okay, you have a website, right? Oh, you wanna be found on Google? You need to do SEO. Oh, you know, you want to uh, land in people's inboxes? You need email marketing and, and marketing automation to do that in a savvy way. Oh, you know, you um, engage in social media, you need content, right? Yeah. Oh, um, our organic social media no longer has the reach it used to. Well, now it's pay to play. And these are basically the options that companies have, that, that companies are shifting budget on. And they miss out on this entire area that I define as influencer marketing. It's really, I used to call it leveraging the other, but it didn't really catch on. It's not that catchy. <laughs> it's really the fact of, you know, social media was made for people, not for business. Why wouldn't you want to collaborate with others in social media and build a relationship where they talk about you. And it really brings on great meaning today because with organic social media, with acquisition costs for, for companies, whether it's organic or paid in social becoming so much more expensive, doesn't it make sense to find other ways? Because social media is still the number one thing we do online. If you can't do it organically and your paid social looks like an ad, which more and more people tune out, and there's more and more competition for advertising. There's another way, and that's working with influence. It's funny because there are so many startups, especially startups started by younger generation, that completely bypass all those other channels and say, you know what, we're going to work purely with influencers for our marketing budget. Wow. Um, I talk to a lot of Japanese small businesses that are not active in social media. And I ask them, you know, how did you get to be where you are today? They go, well, word of mouth marketing, right? Mm -hmm. And they see influencer marketing as a way of completely bypassing everything else and just using it as a way to 
incite word of mouth marketing because they're not getting heard and no one's talking about them yet they know that they need to be talked about in social media in order to build up digital word of mouth marketing yeah so, do you know what gymshark did that the brand gymshark i don't know if is that over there i'm not sure if it is but it's no um, but you know at usc last night hey you know follow us on instagram uh, dm us and we'll we'll give you like a free month of membership that's a very yeah. a, a lot of uh, gyms that's a very very common thing and they, and they reach out to that generation and they get people talking about it right yeah amazing really so, smart but but you know what through sarah this is the b2c right mm -hmm. what the b2b people don't realize is that their seo agencies they're reaching out to bloggers they're yeah. trying to get backlinks yeah podcast interviews that's influencer marketing as well yes and employee advocacy is the same thing you're trying to cite <laughs> employees to talk about it's all influencer brand advocacy you're trying to get your fans to talk about your customers right yeah it's all this concept so you know, hey, it's not just about paying off influencers. You're already probably paying off influencers when you're paying off other companies, you know, whatever money it is to embed a link back to your website for SEO, right? So Brilliant. it's yeah. always been there. It's just the whole Instagram thing and the fact that people that we've never heard of are now generating a lot of money. It's something new because the platforms have changed because Instagram generates so much organic engagement and companies just suck at visual branding and of yeah. creating truly audience-centric content, it's the perfect storm for this. And it's why, <laughs> hey, you know what? Why aren't there any brands that have a million followers on Instagram? Yeah. Suck at it. That's the whole thing here. I think that, you know, my book, I am not like being paid by anybody. I don't have any monetary relationship with Analytic or any other companies I work with. It's purely that this is a question I get asked a lot. And I think it's really the area where there's the least information, the least credible information about, and just a lot of really, really bad information. And a lot of marketers are really being misinformed. They've been miseducated on it. And that's why I want to bring this to light in hopes that it helps businesses. It helps people. I want to help businesses as much as I want to help the analyticals of the world because they're providing a great service and great technology that can really help companies find the right influencers and really generate mutual relationships of value. And I want to help, you know, the content creators as well, because they should be monetized for what they do if companies are generating business from it. Right. So okay. I think we all have to take a step back. And the way I like to approach companies with this information, you know, above and beyond, let's take out Instagram because influence is everywhere. I was contacted by a company recently. They wanted me to post on LinkedIn for them. Right. So yeah. it doesn't matter about the social network, but take a step back. Right. And just think about, you know, how can you get the word out about your company today? And and what are the different ways that you can work with influencers? Because not every influencer is in it for the money. Yes. Some of them yeah. want product. They want and, and really the easiest way to think about it. And I'm like, hey, don't think about influencers. Don't think about creating a relationship with influencers to amplify your content. First, when you think about influencers, I'll say the same about employees as well. Think about creating relationships around content where they can create content for you. And I think when you talk to B2B marketers, they get that, right? Mm -hmm. Because they've always been working with influencers or other companies in the industry ecosystem or employees on content creating influence relationships purely for the content that they create because they're great content creators. They know how to speak to the audience. They are masters at creating audience-centric content and then take the relationship from there. And you have a huge budget, especially B2B companies. They have huge content creation budgets, right? Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to work with influencers who are experts at creating the content in, instead of outsourcing content creation to people that, that have no influence, right? That yeah. there's no added or potential added benefit of creating a relationship, working together with them. So I think when you look at influencer marketing 
with that new definition and in that light, in a much more broader, holistic way, it's actually, Sarah, in a weird way, and I'm, I'm creating my presentation for Social Media Marketing World, and every, every year, that's sort of where I, I launch my new content, and, uh, and I try to, you know, reestablish that leadership in the space, but yeah. I truly believe, in a weird way, influencer marketing helps bring the social back into social media, yeah. because forces businesses to actually collaborate and build relationships with people and marketing now is not one to many it's one to one and it actually i believe as content marketing generated new demand for uh people that used to work at newspapers and magazines and writers i believe that influencer marketing is actually going to generate new demand for people from the pr space and media relations space because they get they understand how to build one-to-one relationships I know I said a lot, Sarah. I'm gonna. I'm very <laughs> passionate about right, and there's well, just I can tell. Yeah, but it's brilliant because you just you're sharing so many golden nuggets. I think of amazing knowledge and understanding, and you and I can hear you punching the desk, Neil. And I'm kind of with you on this. <laughs> all right, so I was almost punching it myself. Do you know? I'm Absolutely. with you. I get That's- it. I do have a question for you though, Neil. So in that. In the context of everything you've just said, I've got a couple of things to put to you. I read a very opinionated article the other day about employees are just content sharers and not influencers. They have no right to become influencers. They are always biased. So that's the first point. And the second point, Edelman Trust Barometer out every year and consistently the most trusted voice that buyers look to is a company technical expert. So can employees become influencers in their own right? So let's, when we define influence, does someone have a community that when they publish content to their, any given social network and their followers see it, do they influence them? Do, do they force people to, to change their minds about things or to be interested in things they weren't interested in earlier? We know that social media does this. Social media has impacted elections, regardless of what the evidence says. We know it has. So now we get to, well, how much influence is influence? And it's funny because I do see so the the B2B influencer marketing about content creation and and, you know blog and SEO. And then I see the B2C more about engagement and likes and you know, maybe e-commerce and and what have you. But so the interesting thing is that in that traditional sort of B2C influence marketing industry, they have always categorized influences based on a number of followers which is sort of hogwash, but anyway. So you have your celebrities and you know, when I see someone with 5 million Instagram followers and they are a TV anchor on you know, a cable TV station or they're a model for you know, Cosmopolitan Magazine, they're a celebrity. They're not a social media influencer, they're, they're a celebrity, right? Yeah. So when I think about social media influencers, I think about people that have influence primarily built upon social networks. But anyway, so you have celebrities, you have like macro influencers, you know, mid-tier influencers. And about two or three years ago, they started talking about, it's all about micro-influencers. These are people that have maybe between 10 and 50,000 followers. And, mm-hmm. you know, they have a better relationship with their community. They're more authentic. They're probably less expensive than working with these celebrities that have priced themselves out in the market. And then about a year, year and a half ago, in the influencer marketing industry, they started talking about nano-influencers. So nano-influencers maybe have between one in five, one in 10,000 followers. But some companies will define nano-influencers as those that have as little as 500, yeah. right? And, mm-hmm. and the reason being that there are studies that have shown that those that have you know less than a 1,000 followers 
in general get a higher engagement than those mm -hmm. that have a lot more followers. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons behind that, but people that have a lower following count, probably number one, never bought fake followers. Yeah. Number two, they don't buy fake engagement. And number three, they just have a smaller, more niche and more tied in community. My daughter, who's 15, she has like 350 followers, right? On Instagram. Yeah. And when she posts like stories and, and posts, she'll get like 100, 200 engagement on those, which is crazy. But that's an example of a smaller count that has this really, really niche community. So now, okay, 500 to 1,000 followers, how many of your employees on any given social network might have 500 or 1,000 followers? Mm -hmm. This yeah. is where when we began employee advocacy, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, employees just didn't have that much influence. And a lot of companies tried to accelerate their influence by you know, using automated tools and, hey, publish this on Twitter. And, and you know, that, that's not what I'm talking about. But today is very different. Today in the United States, millennials are the majority of the workforce. Yeah. So actually, it's become more right yeah. that your employees probably do have a lot more influence than you think. And as we know, Sarah, it's not about everybody joining these programs. It's about finding that 0.1%, the 1%, the 5% of employees that are active on social media. And, and part of this also, when we talk about employee as influencer, it's also what are the needs of your employees around this? How many of your employees would love to get training on personal branding? Raise your hand. How many of your employees would love to get training on how to write better content or how to become a better photographer or videographer or public speaking? It's about investing, right? Yeah. And it's really interesting because in the influencer marketing scene, I've now talked to companies that actually want to create training programs for their influencers to help them become better content creators because it's going to pay dividends in the end. Absolutely. So this is what we're talking about. When I look at employee as influencer programs, that's what's built into it. So can employees have influence in social media? Absolutely they can. Yeah. It depends on the employee. And I, and I know, Sarah, a lot of the people that you talk are probably coming from that B2B perspective, yeah. but, but yes, they can. And you know, at a minimum, even if those real techie engineers don't even have a LinkedIn account, they can become influential through the content they create. Because if they're the people that your customers want to meet, and I used to work in tech industries where that was the case, they didn't want to meet the salesperson or even the field application engineer. <laughs> they wanted to meet the R&D engineers, what have you, the developers of the product. Those people are already rock stars in real life. Those they are, the people, are. But they can be creating content. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to do it themselves, but if you collaborate with them and say, hey, you can reach a lot more people with your thoughts. We want to record a video of you speaking next time, and we want to splice and dice that into 20 YouTube videos and 100 LinkedIn status updates. And they don't even have to be active on social media to have influence on social media. So yeah. it really comes down to, look, what is your objective, right? Do you want to grow your business? Do you want to get more word of mouth and social media? And if the answer is yes, instead of saying we can't do this or employees will never be influencers, I don't like to inject personal opinion unless I have data to back it up or I have a thought process to back that up. So I don't know what that quote unquote expert was saying about employees cannot be influenced because employees already are influencers. And yeah. Sarah, as you know, we have data going back to obviously so many case studies and <laughs> published with case studies that show yes. And it does come back to Edelman Trust Barometer. I also like to quote, you know, what Nielsen says in that famous 92% of us yeah. trust. It's about trusting people that we can relate to. And we relate to people, not brands. And as much as brands want to become better brand storytellers or humanize the brand, they're not human. Okay. No. <laughs> It's never going to be the same relationship. I'm sorry. No. And the 
earlier that businesses realize that and, and begin to collaborate with people. And instead of saying, okay, employees will never be influencers. What if you created a training program where you train employees on personal branding and on using social media and you set them up with a tool that says you don't have to use a tool, but if you know, we're creating some cool content, Hey, we'd love to include your content. Yeah. We want to know what you're talking about. What would your network be interested in? How could we work together? You know, Sarah, we've been talking about social business. We don't talk about it a lot now, but it's a natural extension of sort of that concept of social business that now, you know, employees become drivers of a brand narrative as they should, if you really want to create an inclusive brand, right? Yeah. So I think that no matter what's said out there, this misinformation, that all the, the benefits and things that, that I talk about far outweigh, and, and what you talk about as well, Sarah, far outweigh those potential negatives that are out there. Because you know what? There are some bloggers, there are some authors, they like to generate thought leadership from being negative. They do. It's controversial and they, they like the headlines. And, but it's clickbait, right? And it's not authentic and it doesn't add value to people's lives. So yeah, you can win, Jamone, but actually it's not. That's not helpful. And ultimately, social is about being helpful to your community and bringing something back. I'm sorry. And even last night at USC, you know, one of the students, and this is like a, you know, millennial saying, well, what do you think about authenticity of influencers and people are going to know that they get paid, you know, they use the hashtag ad, they were somehow incentivized. And, and I'm like, look, you know, it, it comes down to the fact that, you know, influencers also care about their community, right? Mm. And you as a brand, if you see someone that every post is an ad, why would you want to work with that person, right? <laughs> yeah. so you want to work with the people that are more authentic, obviously, that care about their community that are not working with your competitors that have a brand image that would resonate with, with your brand and you think your brand would be represented. And so there's a lot of thought that needs to go into it. And if you do that right, yes, it is an ad, but guess what? It got people thinking. It, it exposed your brand to those people. And as we know, influencers are not getting unfollowed because they're publishing sponsored content. And I publish sponsored content on my blog as well, right? And you try mm -hmm. to add value. You're, you're getting paid to offer a different perspective, but you try to add value to your community. So when yeah. I ask my kids about it, they're like, that's awesome. This guy's getting paid. They don't really care, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's obvious that they're going to get paid. They need to make a living. They're a content creator, right? <laughs> So there's a lot of you know, common sense that I think a lot of businesses need to realize. But at the end of the day, if you're not consuming the content and actually seeing the sponsored content in your stream, you'll never understand the authenticity that I believe a lot of it has. This is where you can start, from my perspective around employees as influencers, you can start really understanding the interests of your employees, their passions, and then start connecting them at a more authentic level to external influencers. You could start mapping, this is why I love Analytica too, actually. It's turning into a bit of an Analytica fan club, this is. It's not an advert, anyone who's listening, <laughs> right? Just saying, you know, that you can align external influencers to your internal experts and they can have a truly valuable conversation and it becomes authentic, it becomes more trusted, they can co-collaborate on content. That's the bit that sort of makes my eyes light up because I just think that's value for everybody and authentic. I would add that is one of the things, there's so many things that brands can offer, both employees as well as external influencers. That's one of them is just is introductions, right? Yeah. Introductions that keep people in the industry. That, that's huge for some people. It is, isn't it? And that's all they need. And some employees would be 
totally honoured to be working with an external influencer that they couldn't get access to before. So I just think that's really cool. It's, it's understanding motivations, passions, and creating value out of that, I think. You've mentioned a, a couple of times social business, and I've left it to the last question, actually. One thing I'm noticing with the talk of advocacy, with the talk of social selling, with the talk of influencer marketing and content creation, do you know what? We're seeing a convergence here where social doesn't sit in marketing. You know, there's a lot of programs being created and managed in isolation in global companies. What's your perspective on where this is all going and how it's maybe merging? Well, you know, I talked about this seven, eight years ago where at some point social media permeates the enterprise. I don't know if you remember, like Dell used to have a separate social media division, right? Yeah. yeah. That's no more. So <laughs> social media is now being used by every department. And what's really interesting is I actually have a presentation that I do that I just recorded yesterday, as a matter of fact, for one of these uh, online summits about this convergence of influencer marketing, employee advocacy, and social selling. And I do believe that that is, social selling has always been the number one driver for employee advocacy. Mm -hmm. And when you treat employees as influencers and you give them the training and you give them the freedom and you collaborate with them on a one-to-one basis, that's where it, a lot of amazing things can happen from a social selling perspective as well. So I do believe we're going to see more of this. I do believe that companies are more and more looking internally, especially B2C companies, especially, but not just limited to them, of, of seeing the potential of now that they understand that, wow, you know, there's so much potential for working with others in social media to generate value of tapping more and more into their you know employee base. So I always think that none of this is a revolution. It's an evolution and the digital transformation is still taking time. I mean, the internet's been around for a while and social media has been around for a while, but there's still so many companies that don't do a lot of the things that we talk about, Sarah. So yeah. it takes time for all this, but I do believe we're going to get to the point where, you know, providing training for employees, especially for large organizations or, or creating these programs is, I, I think it's going to actually begin with, we're going to have in parallel of sort of these employee advocacy programs. You're also going to see more and more companies creating these programs for influencers. Mm -hmm. And I think slowly you're going to start to see a marriage of the external influencer and the internal influencer into basically, you know, when I was consulting in the early days, like 2010, 2011, one of the things that I I was teaching companies that you should create, you know, you need to have your online fam uh, community yeah. uh, in case something goes wrong or, or you know whatever you want to have people in social that you can tap into to come to your rescue right your yeah. fans and if you can do this with with influencers actually create a community where you meet with them you know maybe annually maybe quarterly they become sort of this mvp community that you can tap into for ideas because they understand they can teach you so much more than you can teach them. Yeah. Um, and that's where, you know, I believe at the end of the day that when I talked about social business and my original definition, how it permeates the enterprise, we begin to see more and more business decisions actually being influenced by social media because it does become the ultimate public focus group. And now you do have folks from R&D that attend my classes at, at, at Rutgers oh, Business School wow. because they're tapping into public opinion to, this, to try to figure out what products they should develop and what have you. So we're already starting to see that happen, although at a small scale. But I think that's where you begin to see that um, social can, what, because it represents what people think, it can actually influence internal business decisions. And 
I think we're going to see more and more of that as time goes on. Well, the, now you're tapping into the social CEO and how leaders need to have a grip on social. You know, this is not just a way of getting your personal brand out there. It's a way of listening to your customers and driving your business direction and product innovation. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It filters through the whole thing, the whole business. And yeah, I'm, I'm seeing the same, Neil. And I'm seeing how the people are connecting these things through the way they measure it, how, you know, influencers create content. They put it in their advocacy tool that drives traffic to their website. And you can see that employee driven traffic to the website is converting at a much higher rate than any other source of traffic. We see it a lot with our customers. You know, it's just, it's connecting all of that and then connecting it to CRM through to opportunity. And, you know, and then yeah. you're touching on social selling. I just love all of this stuff and how and, it connects. And Autolytica is, is really big on sort of, you know, CEO as influencer. And, and really, yeah. if you think about it, right, uh, from a social media perspective, a company is a tribe, yeah. right? Yeah. So, the tribe leader needs the lead. And if you truly want to get everybody on board, the CEO should be leading. And, you know, I think being relatable as a brand becomes more and more important over time with younger generations. And the best way to be relatable is to have your leader actually having a voice and, and yes. being out there and engaging with people, right? Yeah. So it's funny, on a very smaller scale, I am very active on Pinterest and I have, I use a tool called Tailwind that has this a tailwind tribe. So I have my own tribe of, you know, a few hundred people that are, are actively, uh, you know, they're content creators and they're actively pinning on marketing and, and what have you. And I realized, wow, if I really want this tribe to get going and to be very active, I need to start with me because I have influence and I should be sharing. Why am I in all these other tribes? I should just stick to this one tribe and just share content for my tribe and make everybody as influential as possible. Yeah. And this is what CEOs should be doing. It's the exact same concept by leading, by sharing, by engaging, and really sharing your employee voice. Companies should be helping employees. And I think we've, we've both contributed to blog posts on the subject, you know, <laughs> helping employees become influencers. Yeah. And it, it really starts at the top. And, and yeah. I think that those companies that, that start with the top, and there's a lot of iconic brands, you know, T-Mobile, you know, Tesla, oh, what have yeah. you. Um, that are doing that but mm -hmm. i think it makes a huge huge difference and although it's not something i talk a lot about i do hope that those leaders that are listening or those marketing leaders that are listening can have these conversations with their leadership and it, it can be done without taking up a lot of the ceo's time you know content can be created without the ceo actually writing something by you know using editors and, and and you know using voice recorders to get that voice down but there's just a lot of things that can be done that is going to reap uh, benefits for your brand in, in so many different ways over time super neil do you know what thank you so much for sharing your insights honestly it is just full of rich nuggets of information we've learned about influencers micro influencers nano influencers the celebrities the difference brilliant the convergence of social business my word we've managed to pack a lot in in that time absolute pleasure to have you on this podcast chat so um thank you so much neil really good Thank you. I've, I've always, you know, have greatest respect for you. It's been an honor to be here. And there's just so few people in the world that I could have this sort of conversation with. And, oh. and I feel like we're at similar levels of experience and understanding. So it's really been a pleasure. And I hope that those listening to the podcast, there's sort of flies on the wall can benefit from this. And obviously, you know, reach out if I can be of any other help or answer any other questions for both for you, Sarah, as well as anyone else listening, please do feel free to uh, reach out to me on any given social network. Well, we'll put a little thing on how people can contact you, how they can read your story of your two near-death experiences. We'll put links 
to that as well because I bet people are curious now and want to know what that is so we'll make sure we do that but thank you so much Neil really appreciate that and I think we ought to have another podcast about Generation X and global networking well, you have a good day Neil anyway thank you <laughs> alright you too Sarah take care thanks for listening to the Campfire Chat podcast be sure to visit tribalimpact.com to join us on social media, access the show notes and discover content that relates to today's conversation. See you at the next episode.